Hello, I'm Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research. Thank you so much for joining JP Morgan TV. Today, we are discussing our latest JP Morgan Perspectives report, Food Security and Climate Change, The Makings of a Perfect Storm. Well, what a summer it's been. We've seen the hottest temperatures on record in July, extreme weather events, and ongoing geopolitical risk. All of these factors are exacerbating food insecurity, which has become the new normal. Climate change and biodiversity loss are pointing to recurring crises. Taking a look around the globe, moderate or severe food insecurity now affects around 30% of the global population. That's 2.4 billion people, with 11% being severely food insecure. Severe weather and stockpiling of food reserves is compounding the supply side risk. And we're seeing low inventories as well. This is driving agricultural prices on the commodity side higher on a structural basis. In this report, we highlight three shocks that tilt food prices to the upside. First, there's the breakdown of the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Second, we're seeing the rice export restrictions from India. And third, we're seeing the ongoing impact of El Nino. Taking a look at domestic food price inflation, it remains high in almost all countries, regardless of income levels. Taking a look at the 166 countries for which food CPI and overall CPI indexes are both available, 80% are showing food price inflation that exceeds overall inflation. Many countries are resorting to food export policy restrictions through bans or limits. Fertilizer export restrictions also are in place and are impacting about 20% of the global trade in nitrogenous and phosphate exports. So what should investors do and how should investors be positioned? Our global agricultural commodities team recommends staying along the AgriComplex VN index. Their price forecasts sit above the futures curves. And our U.S. equity analysts highlight U.S. food and beverage producers that can adapt sustainably and grow revenues at a faster pace than the industry average. We've also developed a number of food screens that take a look at companies around the globe that are prepared to weather um, food insecurity being with us for the duration. So to expand on these points, I'm pleased to be joined by my colleagues in global research around the globe. Nicholas Alessandro, our head of EMEA, EM Economics Research, based in London. Toshi Jain, joining us from India, from the India Economics Research Team. Vincentius Moreira, from the Brazil Economics Research Team, based in Sao Paulo. Natasha Kaneva, who is our Head of Commodity Strategy. Virginia Hurtetz, our Head of EM Methodology and Integration Research. And Amy Ho from Strategic Research. So let's get into the discussion right now. Nikolai, let me come to you and let's just start with the Black Sea Grain Initiative. How has the collapse of the Black Sea Grain Initiative impacted the global food system? And is there any resolution in sight? Thank you, Joyce. Let me walk you through uh, a few ideas here. And I guess uh, two points are worth highlighting. First, there has been limited impact so far, uh, largely because of elevated stocks in both Russia and Ukraine, along with um, good harvest uh, in this season. Second, uh, while harvest and stocks might not be an issue, uh, geopolitics remains a wild card, and it is hard to forecast how it will impact the delivery of uh, grains globally. Uh, for geopolitics uh, to have an impact, prices would have to uh, eventually 
show reaction as well. So going back to the first point I made, price of grains such as wheat and maize has increased after the Black Sea Grain Initiative collapsed uh, on uh, 17 July, uh, but the spike was uh, short-lived. Uh, we've also seen uh, a spike in uh, food prices um, uh, globally, as measured by both um, FAO and uh, World Bank. Uh, this uh, increase happened in July, uh, after more than a year of uh, price falls. Uh, yet, given that uh, grain prices um, fell uh, during uh, August to levels that are below uh, July. Uh, it is not clear if um, FAO food inflation uh, continue to rise. Uh, regarding the efforts to uh, find a resolution uh, to the uh, Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, uh, there are some um, efforts underway, uh, either to restart the initiative or to find alternatives. Uh, I would say that uh, for now, the focus is uh, on building alternative routes because it does not appear likely that Russia will agree to resume uh, Black Sea Grain Initiative despite efforts from the international community and Turkish authorities. There are mainly uh, three uh, alternatives worth considering. One is increased exports over land water. Romania can help uh, over Danube and the plan envisages a doubling of exports through Romania. Poland can also help to increase capacity over land. At the same time, Ukraine is working on a deal with global insurers to resume exports through the Black Sea by sharing risks with them. Uh, third point is that EU is working on uh, subsidies uh, for exports, which are now more expensive uh, through these alternative routes uh, and uh, are focused on exports which are going to um, poor countries in Africa. Thank you so much for those comments on that very complicated subject. A follow-on question. Since your region, the EMEA region, has been the most impacted, which countries are the most exposed to the wheat and rice shortfalls? I would start first by providing uh, a bit of context. Uh, Ukraine accounts for about 10% of uh, global grain market, and Russia accounts for more than 20%. Uh, therefore, they are both uh, important suppliers. Uh, Ukraine is also more than 50% of the sunflower oil market. Uh, in what we call Europe Edge, Azerbaijan and Georgia uh, are and still remain large importers uh, from Russia. Uh, in Africa, the impact was mostly in North Africa, uh, specifically in the case of Egypt and Tunisia. Countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, like Ghana and Kenya, uh, are also significant importers of um, wheat. Uh, but here, uh, rice plays a bigger role, uh, and its price um, uh, was uh, impacted to the upside uh, after restrictions were imposed by India, uh, who is the largest rice exporter. Going back to uh, grains and wheat, uh, source countries uh, for um, North Africa have shifted materially uh, in favor of Russia uh, and um, uh, to the damage of Ukraine, as Ukraine uh, uh, reoriented um, its exports more towards um, uh, China and uh, Europe. Uh, it is unlikely that importers will not be able to source grains uh, going forward. Uh, they managed uh, with a complicated situation in uh, 2022, uh, and um, like I said, they already um, 
reorient themselves more towards Russia. Uh, so the main channel would be really uh, a price channel. Uh, and food inflation has diverged in Africa from what we have seen in global markets where food prices um, have declined. In, in Africa, we haven't seen that decline. In some cases, we've seen even acceleration in uh, consumer food inflation. And that was mainly because of uh, effects weakening uh, in the region, which has kept food inflation uh, elevated or pushed it even higher. If indeed uh, there are issues with uh, delivery of grains from uh, either Ukraine uh, or Russia or from both of them, uh, and like I said, they account for about a third of uh, global exports, uh, then uh, the risk is one of uh, food prices increasing. Um, and that would um, impact uh, mostly countries in Africa. And given the large uh, weight of uh, food in uh, consumer baskets, it would also keep uh, overall inflation elevated. That's all from me. Back to you, Joyce. Thank you so much, Nikolai. Let's move now to Asia, to India, and talk about the situation there. So, Toshi, how bad is the rice shortage, and how has the monsoon season impacted food stocks? Thanks, Joyce, for your question. I think uh, uh, there are not uh, direct shortages right now, but I think the pressures are building up. Uh, rice, as you know, is a key staple of the country. It has around 5% weight in the consumer basket. The inflation, uh, the rice inflation is running around 13%, the last print in, in, in the month of July. And the monsoon rains have been quite erratic this year. Um, it started with a lay, uh, delay in, in June. Uh, it caught up in July, but in August, August again, we are seeing a deficit of around 30% uh, uh, odd uh, number. So uh, the monsoon rains have been uh, subpar. The worry is that in East India, which is uh, a key rice-growing uh, region, the deficit is cumulatively around minus 20% now. So overall, the erratic uh, monsoon is creating concerns that the production could be uh, uh, produ uh, production could be weak this year. Uh, the second thing is that the though the sowing has been good. But if you have a, a subpar monsoon, then the production could be hurt, hurt up there. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why you saw like the government uh, uh, put up a ban to the non-Basmati rice uh, exports also. Uh, uh, exports, as you know, is around 10% of the production of the country, overall rice exports. And India is the uh, by far the largest producer, uh, largest exporter of the rice. It contributes 40% of the total rice exports in the world. So uh, those pressures are there. Uh, uh, on, in terms of the rice stocks, uh, country, it, it's pretty okay. Like uh, uh, the buffer norms are around 13 and a half million tons. Uh, we have it around 24 million tons right now, but this is the lowest in uh, in four years. So overall, the pressure points are there and that that's creating concerns for the policymaker. So we're still seeing these lingering impacts. Um, let me just ask you a follow-on question. How long do you think the ban on rice exports will be kept in place? That's a good question, Joyce. I think it depends on both domestic and international factor. On the domestic front, I think uh, the rice production would be a key variable to track. Uh, and in uh, uh, and, and the evolution of the, the rice production, I think uh, the monsoon being very critical uh, in that aspect. So the rice production, if, the, if, if you have a decent rice production, uh, then policymakers should be pretty okay with it and that can pave the way for the uh, the exports ban coming off 
But if you have a subpar production, then, then that increases the pressure points. Second thing would be on the international front, how the global rice production is uh, in the context that this is an Alino year uh, uh, and there could be a, a risk to the global rice production. So if, if rice production trends are uh, well, then that, that's going to uh, uh, also uh, uh, ease the concerns of the policymakers. And thirdly, the developments of the link would be the developments of the other rice exporters, uh, like how the things are panning out there. Uh, say, for example, Thailand, uh, there are concerns about the rice production. Uh, the Thai rice prices have also gone up uh, because of that. So if, if the, the other rice production uh, producers, exporters are also coming under pressure, and if, if they start imposing ban and all, that's going to uh, uh, also play into the, uh, the dashboard of the policymakers. So I think both the factors will be uh, important on the domestic front, how the monsoon evolves, how the domestic rice production is linked to that. And secondly, on the international front, what happens to the global rice production and, and how, what is the reaction function of other uh, major rice exporters? I think both put factor would come in and if the pressure points reduce for the policymakers, then they, they, they would go ahead and take out the ban. But till that pressure situation is there, they would continue with the ban. Thank you so much, Toshi, for those comments. Let's now turn to Latin America and talk about El Nino. So Vicentius, sitting in Brazil, how has El Nino impacted agricultural production in Latin America? Thanks, George, for the question. So typically, the effects of the El Nino are more pronounced in Latin America and parts of Asia. Uh, in Latam specifically, it makes the weather wetter in parts of Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. And remember that Argentina is coming from severe droughts. So to some extent, El Nino could help to revert that. It makes the northern part of Latam uh, drier and impacting particularly Colombia, Venezuela, and you know Central America below Mexico, I would say. In Brazil, in particular, it can raise uh, temperatures in the southeast, which is the you know, largest economic uh, region in the country. Uh, and then the, the, there's a discussion about you know, what's going to be the effect for the region as a whole. And when it, when it comes to that, I would say that there were two episodes in the past, and one with a much more moderate impact, and the other with a, you know, a larger impact that... Uh, uh, that was very meaningful, especially for Brazil and Colombia. Uh, and in 2009-2010, the, it was res, less relevant for the region. In 2015 and 2016, particularly Brazil-Colombia, they had you know, large spike in food prices and electricity prices because those countries, they rely a lot on hydropower. Uh, the secondary effects, you know, the, it comes for, first to through you know lower uh, grains production in particular in Brazil, but there's secondary impacts also on meat, poultry, and pork, given that they have a, a you know a high reliance on rations. And you know the hydropower, you know those countries they rely a lot on this uh, type of electric electricity generation. In Brazil, this is about seventy percent. And therefore, in 2015, 2016, uh, this this you know lower rainfall kind of led to very meaningful hikes in electricity prices uh, in those two countries specifically. But I, I, would, I would point out that, you know, the initial conditions, they matter a lot. And if you think about Brazil, for example, the solid crops of the last three years, actually record 
uh, uh, high crops and the accumulated inventories that came with it can mitigate some of the potential impacts of El Nino. Uh, the water reservoirs in Brazil are full. And so the, the risk of a, a, another hike in electricity prices seems a little bit low if you, if you think about the initial conditions. Uh, but in Colombia, things are a little bit different uh, and you are already seeing some of the effects of this below average uh, seasonal rainfall, which can, again, lead to higher food prices in the future. In Chile and Peru specifically, there's, you know, the having uh, heavy rainfall can impact mostly um, the, the, the infrastructure. Right? It's less about crops and it's more about the infrastructure. Uh, but overall, I would say that one of the, the impacts that is overlooked here is the impact in the Panama Canal. Uh, you know, because of drier conditions, it can uh, exacerbate the problem that the Panama Canal is already facing, which is reduce and increase the, uh, the restrictions of vessels going there. And because this is a key route for energy and grain exports in the U.S., can have repercussions uh, worldwide. Well, we are seeing these ongoing effects. So let me just ask you, how long do you think El Nino will persist? Is this going to be with us through the winter? And what are the implications for food inflation? The chances of an El Nino are, are, are strong, right? So the, the question now is about the magnitude of it. So the El Nino and the La Nina, they are developed through April, June. So they, it's already, we're already past the, the, that period. And they typically, they, 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 they are with us for nine to 12 months and they can take almost two years uh, to phase out. Uh, so this means that there's a 90% chance, 95 actually percent chance that it, it, it persists through winter, according to NOAA. And the question is, is the strength, as I mentioned. So, uh, Columbia University is saying that you know the, the length of this uh, El Nino is probably 60% chances that it ends by April. Uh, but the, the question of the strength, that's it's an open question. Uh, if we think about uh, you know how this is going to be uh, incorporated in the scenario, as of now, I don't think that most of our countries' forecasts have the El Nino as a base case. But most of our forecasts see this inflation, uh, you know, especially next year. This is a risk uh, that we are flagging. It's not our base case, but we are already seeing some of the impacts of weather-related problems in India, for example. And there, food prices are already rising. You're already having problems with water reservoirs. So it's in a yellow flag, and it's one of the effects that we need to monitor. On that, uh, I think there's upside risk to our call. But this is especially true if countries start uh, doing protectionist measures. And, you know, we had India raising, uh, you know, kind of banning some of the exports on rice. And if other countries do that, the impact worldwide can be uh, much larger than if it, it's more localized problems in one region or the other. Thank you so much, Vincentius. I'd like to now um, really turn to see what this means for the overall commodities um, complex and turn to Natasha. So Natasha, how much stockpiling of wheat and rice has occurred and what does this mean for agricultural commodity prices in your forecasts? Thank you, Joyce. Uh, starting with wheat, uh, drought is expected to send global wheat stockpiles for major exporters to the lowest levels in more than a decade, a decline that is coming exactly the same time when Russia, which is the largest wheat exporter in the world, 
terminated on July 18th its participation in the Black Sea initiative that allowed the safe export of Ukraine's grain. Uh, United States De uh, Department of uh, Agriculture analysis of, on wheat inventories for seven major exporters shows wheat stockpiles levels will dwindle to a 16-year low in the 2023-2024 harvest season, removing Russia, the U.S., and the EU, then the ratio of demand to stocks uh, drops to the lowest since at least the 1960s, reflecting, uh, reflecting tight supplies uh, in important shippers like Australia, Canada, and Argentina. So essentially, wheat importers have no supply cushion to fall back upon and are vulnerable to further supply and price shocks. So there's a multitude of reasons why wheat inventories are so low. So clearly there's a supply risk from uh, the Black Sea. There's a lower than anticipated plantings in Argentina. Uh, current crop quality is worse in parts of Europe as well as weather issues in two of the uh, major exporters of wheat, the United States and Canada. So all of those are exacerbating the supply situation. So China, which is also another major exporter of wheat, saw its first decline summer wheat output in seven years after heavy rains uh, earlier this summer. So the country has grain reserves, although lower production and poor quality uh, could increase imports. So somewhat offsetting these worries, Russia is expected to have another record uh, harvest season this year. So and what we've been observing over the last couple of months is that the major importers of Russian wheat, like uh, countries in the Middle East and uh, Africa, have been buying hand-to-mouth in anticipation of stronger wheat uh, volumes out of Russia later this year. So in another twist, uh, India's export restrictions on all rice varieties that have been announced over this weekend uh, further exacerbating worries about potential tight global wheat supplies, mostly because both crops, both wheat and, and rice, are used uh, as for food. Um, India's government has stepped up measures to shield consumers from rising food prices ahead of the election. So India has been dealing with those issues since uh, since the 2022-2023 season, which was a bad harvest season for rice. Um, this year, below normal rainfall in the key growing states uh, have raised concerns about production of rice, but also uh, concerns about wheat and sugar exports. So India is the world's largest rice shipper, accounting for more than 40% of global exports, and it's the second largest sugar and wheat producers in the world. So the price impact will be influenced by the extent to which uh, major importers of Indian rice release their reserve stocks and how long the ban will last. We believe that the boss factors are under uh, unclear at, at this point. So China, which is India's major uh, trading partner, rice trading partner, has inventories as well as Bangladesh. Um, so they, you know, they hold inventory covers that could go a long way to uh, buffering the potential impact uh, of the export loss, but still, you know, clearly the risks are to the upside. Crucially, rice prices in Thailand, which is another major exporter of rice, have been rising due to drought conditions, which may also weigh on export potential, which at this point looks uh, as likely as the government has officially requested the farmers to reduce production to save water. So under those conditions, if there is a potential drop, the exports of Thailand rice for the 10 to 15% price move higher is not out of the question. So our agricultural balances continue to project depleting inventories in, in rice, in wheat, and in sugar with upside risks to all three commodities. Um, back to you, Joyce. Thank you so much, Natasha, and, and really recommend that everybody follow the tracker that they have on inventories for commodities.
So Virginia, let me turn to you to talk about the overall um, impact on ESG and specifically on biodiversity loss, which you've written about um, for the last few months. So how is biodiversity loss impacting food security and how do you estimate the cost and the financial risk from biodiversity loss? Thank you, Joyce, for the question. Now, before I can answer it, uh, let me take a step back. According to some estimates, around half of global GDP is moderately or highly dependent on biodiversity and the provision of ecosystem services. Now, what do I mean by ecosystem services? That would be materials and water supply, climate regulation, pollination, pest control, quality air and soil, etc. All of these are essential to many economic activities and their value is material, about 1.5 times global GDP, according to some estimates. These ecosystem services are also key to food security, which takes me to the first part of your question. Less biodiversity means less of the plants, animals, and microorganisms that are critical to pollination, cleaning water, and keeping soil fertile. Let's look at some specific numbers. Scientists estimate that three quarters of global food crops rely on animal pollination. That is 35% of production by volume. If pollinating insects were to vanish from the face of the earth tomorrow, crop production would decline by 5% in developed world and 8% in low to middle income countries. 52% of the land used for agriculture is moderately or severely affected by land and soil degradation globally, with a direct and indirect cost of up to $10.6 trillion a year. These examples can feel anecdotal, but the impact of biodiversity loss is likely to be felt at macro level too. Which brings me to the second part of your question. According to a World Bank model, the collapse of wild pollination, marine fisheries, and timber provision in native forests as they degrade into savanna could trim global growth by 2.3% per annum by 2030. That is almost 3 trillion US dollars. The impact would be most severe in emerging and frontier markets relative to developed markets. So for example, the model sees a reduction of 6.5% GDP growth per annum relative to the baseline in South Asia versus 0.7% in Europe and 0.5% in North America. On the flip side, there are also potential economic benefits from taking a more natural nature friendly approach. Academic research, again, suggests that a sustainable approach to fishing could increase profits in that industry by more than 49 billion euros. And protecting coastal wetlands could reduce insurance claims related to flood damage by 40 billion euros. Sustainable land management could increase crop production value by $1.4 trillion, whilst sustainable agriculture could create between 100 billion and half a trillion a year in carbon credits. Finally, how about the impact to corporates today? In the shorter term, we're starting to see regulations to protect biodiversity. For example, under the EU deforestation law, companies could be fined up to 4% of EU turnover for non-compliance. So summing up, biodiversity is indeed critical to food security, and more generally, the impact of biodiversity loss 
are likely to be felt both at macro and micro level. Thank you so much, Virginia. Biodiversity loss is definitely on the radar this year um, from the point of view of many of the investors that we talk to. So now I have a final question for Amy Ho and our strategic research team who has been tracking the export restrictions and the bans on both food, price, uh, food and also on fertilizer. So Amy, how many countries continue to resort to food export um, policy restrictions? So thank you so much, Joyce, for having me today. So food and fertilizer export restrictions have really become the new normal since the start of the Russia-Ukraine war. Russia's exit from the Black Sea Grain Initiative also terminates the Memorandum of Understanding with the UN, which really aimed at trying to improve these agricultural and fertilizer export volumes over the longer term. So as of June, you have about 20 countries which have implemented about 27 food export bans. An additional 10, um, some of these overlapping countries have implemented 14 export limiting measures. So now you have countries bracing for this ongoing food insecurity through increased stockpiling, and they're really seeking alternate supply routes. But in the same time, they're maintaining these restrictions on food and fertilizer exports. And at face value, countries screening at the most at risk from this prolonged disturbance in wheat markets tend to be very large wheat importers that are super reliant on Russian and Ukrainian flows. And these countries are mainly in the Middle East and North Africa and the Central Asia Caucasus uh, countries. In particular, you have Tunisia and Egypt at top the list, um, the concern list, considering their high dependence on Russia and Ukrainian wheat and large capita consumptions. In practice, however, both of these countries have significant subsidies on bread, which means higher international prices would really translate into larger fiscal than rather than consumer costs. Well, let's just take a look also um, at fertilizer. Fertilizer restrictions are also a problem and remain in place. What is the impact on affordability? Now, fertilizer export restrictions continue to impact more than 20% of global trade in nitrogenous and phosphate exports. The war in Ukraine is really having a major impact on the global supply of agricultural fertilizers, given Russia, together with Belarus, are the world's largest sources of mineral fertilizers. Although there were specific exemptions in the sanctions, sanctions regime to permit Russia and Belarus, Belarus to continue to supply fertilizers, exports have really been hampered by the exclusion of Russian banks from the SWIFT payment systems, along with the reluctance of insurers to cover shipments in a war zone. At the same time, you also have export routes across the EU closed. So these shortages have been compounded by export restrictions imposed by China, which account for about 30% of global phosphate fertilizer supplies. Fertilizers um, in China, uh, fertilizer exports from China shrunk by 50% in 2022, according to the World Bank. And during the same year, surging energy prices contribu contributed to about 70% drop in European fertilizer production. The World Bank's Fertilizer Affordability Index, which measures the ratio of fertilizer to food prices, shows that affordability remains at historically high levels. And what does that mean? A higher ratio represents lower fertilizer affordability. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of our speakers, Nikolai, Toshi, Vincentius, Natasha, Virginia, and Amy for joining us today on JP Morgan TV to look at this critical issue of food insecurity that is going to endure and stay with us. Um, we look forward to welcoming you back to future episodes of JP Morgan TV, where we explore the key events impacting the global macro and markets outlook. Thank you for joining us today.